to Common Ground, a podcast from the Washington Research Council. My name is Mary Strau. Um, I'm here today flying solo. My usual partner, Randy Abrams Karras, isn't able to be with us today. Um, but I'm very happy to be speaking today with Robert Mary, who um, was a longtime reporter and editor, correct, at Congressional Quarterly. I was an editor, and I was the CEO, actually, and also. CEO, okay, great, of Congressional Quarterly, um, and is now the editor of The National Interest, um, and also a resident of Washington State, so we're happy to, to have you here among us Washingtonians. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I will just note one small little correction. I, I was the editor of the National Interest, but since I moved back to my beloved Northwest, mm -hmm. uh, I have been serving as a contributing editor to the oh. National Interest. Okay, contributing editor. Good. Thank you for setting that straight. Um, first of all, I mean, we're the bulk of this um, podcast is going to be devoted, obviously, to the presidential election and the surprise, at least to me, to a lot of people, uh, victory of Donald Trump. But can you give us just a, a brief little bit of background on on um, on yourself and your career? Well, I'd love to, Mary. I grew up in uh, Gig Harbor and went to the University of Washington, where I uh, majored in uh, editorial journalism and edited the daily and uh, went off to the uh, Army um, and spent most of my time in Germany mm -hmm. uh, in intelligence work, but then always wanted to get into journalism. So uh, I went to, uh, got a master's degree at Columbia University and began my journalism career, which included um, 12, 12 years with the Wall Street Journal in Washington, D.C., and 22 years uh, with Congressional Quarterly as a, a editor, and then I became uh, editor-in-chief and president of the company, mm -hmm. uh, which I served in that capacity for 12 years until it was sold um, out from under me uh, to The Economist of London, mm. uh, at which point I was promptly unhorsed and became oh. editor of the National Interest, but concluded along the way that it was time to come back to... Uh, the Northwest, where I grew up, I didn't want to die of Potomac fever, um, and so uh, that's how I ended up uh, back here, and it's a pleasure to be with you. Wonderful. Well, we're very happy to have you. Um, I'd like to start off by uh, mentioning that you wrote about two years ago that you didn't see any way for Hillary Clinton, um, even if she did win the Democratic Party's uh, presidential nomination. You didn't see any way for her to actually win the presidency. And uh, by golly, you turned out to be right. And c can you explain to us what went into that, um, to that judgment of yours? Yeah, I'd be pleased to do that. I, uh, you could call that piece that I wrote um, uh, audacious. Mm -hmm. You could call it prescient, I suppose, yeah. but more audacious, but maybe foolish. <laughs> um, because that's uh, that's not something you want to put a lot of money on, uh, betting against a single person, especially somebody with her credentials. Right. But there was a certain amount of method to my uh, editorial madness there in mm -hmm. that I really felt at that time and had for some time and still do uh, 
that the status quo, the national status quo was crumbling, that it wasn't holding, mm-hmm. and that politics was going to reflect that reality, mm-hmm. uh, and that Hillary Clinton represented the status quo in so many ways, and sometimes quite defiantly and with great deal of force, and sometimes with considerable brilliance. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought that this election, as a result of that crumbling status quo, was going to be highly unpredictable, uh, and that it was not going to unfold in the way that that our elections normally do. I had no idea um, how it was going to unfold, but I just thought it was going to be distinctive and unusual and surprising. Mm. Um, And I think that was the one thing that I did get right. What made you think that things were, that the established order was sort of crumbling or unraveling and and that that things were headed for a change? Well, the country was in a crisis, and I thought that it was a crisis. It was a crisis of political deadlock. Mm. And political deadlock doesn't just emerge. Yeah. Um, you know, all of a sudden, uh, there's gridlock, like uh, when the traffic jam uh, um, emerges uh, in downtown Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more a reflection of the parties clinging to the politics that no longer resonate, that no longer makes mm-hmm. sense, that no mm-hmm. longer can move the country forward. So we have two parties, or had, uh, two parties that were clinging to their old models, and their old models weren't resonating with the American people, and yet they were clinging to them and going against each other with great, greater force as they became more and more... Um, uh, frustrated. Yeah. It was almost like that uh, Chinese puzzle where you put your two fingers in and the harder you mm. pull apart, the str- tougher it gets to, impossible it gets to pull it out. Right. Um, and so that's what I thought was happening. And the only way to to move the country forward in that kind of a situation is to have a new brand of politics that emerges that cre- that is based on new thinking and new clusters of issues and can then build a new coalition as Franklin Roosevelt did as to a lesser extent that Ronald Reagan did mm-hmm. um, and as many other as the greatest presidents of our of our history have done mm-hmm. uh, so that the country can then break that deadlock that is causing the crisis and move forward. That's fascinating um, because you know I'm I'm uh, I've always been a Republican, um, but one thing I've noticed about my party, at least, is that I've that's been concerning to me over the past several years is, um, you know, I came of age in the era of Reagan and loved Jack Kemp, and um, one of the appeals was the ideas, the new fresh ways of looking at things um, that they had. And, you know, as you say, that seems to have all sort of ossified. They're, um, I, I think that's really resonated what you said about how they're just digging into these old ideas that aren't really relevant to people anymore. Um, and so, yeah, taking it from that viewpoint, it, it's... And looking back, it seems sort of inevitable that what has happened, happened. Yeah, I think that um, it does. Looking back, everything seems natural. Yeah, looking sure. forward, it seems impossible and, and uh, inconceivable. But mm-hmm. that's the nature of American politics, and right. that's the nature of any kind of democratic system. Um, now, why do you think, first of all, did you, when, when Donald Trump first got in, the race. Did you think he had a chance? 
No, I never thought much of him. I didn't know much about him and mm-hmm. didn't really care to know much about him. He, yeah. he seemed like just the kind of a person that I would not gravitate to in any kind of a popular culture sense, and certainly not in terms of any political significance. Um, but something he did sort of stirred my interest. Um, when I'm talking about the status quo crumbling, it's, it's also you have elites attempting to um, run the, the country uh, in ways that aren't necessarily um, consonant mm-hmm. with a broad sentiment in the country, in the mm-hmm. land. Mm-hmm. And one example was immigration. Yeah. Because um, the elites, the people in Washington, they didn't really want to talk about immigration in that, in that campaign. And the reason they didn't is because they had this terrible, terrible difficulty. They knew that the only way to solve the problem from their rights uh, was to essentially provide amnesty. They also knew that large numbers of Americans, maybe not in a majority in the polls, but in terms of intensity and large numbers who weren't speaking to pollsters, mm-hmm. uh, were utterly opposed to amnesty. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there was this body of angry sentiment, uh, the people with this uh, point of view, who were essentially being finessed. Hmm. And I do believe that this uh, immigration issue would not have come up in the campaign. Jeb Bush wasn't going to bring it up. Right. Uh, Marco Rubio wasn't going to bring it up. The Democrats weren't going to bring it up because they're all waiting for an opportunity to, to, to finesse it yes. so that they could get it into you know, the legislative setting. Um, and Trump forced it into the consciousness of the American people. And I have to say, I perked up at that. I said, well, that is... That, that, that takes some takes some courage, but it also takes some guts, um, and um, uh, it it clearly worked for him. It wasn't the only thing that worked for him, right. but it certainly made a big difference. And his crudity, which I, I, I was disgusted by from the very beginning, yeah. actually contributed to it because people interpreted that crudity as manifesting that this was indeed somebody who took this issue seriously. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting as I've been, you know, listening to him after, well, I guess just in the Leslie Stahl uh, 60 Minutes interview where, I think that was it, where he um, indicated that he, you know, there he seemed to indicate there would not be a deportation force, that he they would in fact just be focusing on um, illegal and people who were here illegally who had committed crimes. Um, so he immediately after the election took a much, at least relative to Donald Trump, <laughs> uh, much softer tone. So it strikes me that, you know, he, he had that real forcefulness and that crudity and, um, uh, and some would say the racism uh, during the election, which caught people's attention. But now he's sort of going back, m- m- perhaps even going back to more of a sort of a conventional wisdom type of approach to to immigration, does it? Do you do you think so, or I guess it, it remains to be seen what he actually does once he's. It's lost. not clear. I, I think clearly he can't govern as he as he ran as he as he campaigned. Mm-hmm. He's going to have to. Um, He's going to have to bring people together, mm-hmm. and uh, but I, I, if you look at uh, his appointments, mm-hmm. um, particularly Attorney General uh, Jeff Sessions, it's pretty clear to me that he intends to um, move in the direction that he suggested during the campaign. Yeah. But I think he's going to have to do it with more finesse, and he's going to have yeah. to do it in ways that aren't going to 
um, uh, leave all kinds of bruised feelings. He's going to be right. bruising enough feelings, but he's going to have to get people to come along with him. Right, right. Um, I, I would like to talk um, in a little bit about how he, how you think he might get along with Congress, but I'd also like to go back to, um, you've written recently about um, globalism, in fact, I think you even wrote about this before the election, globalism versus nationalism. And I want to make sure our readers realize that there's been a lot of talk recently about white nationalism. It isn't that. It's yeah, Nationalism is more of a, you know, let's look to our, let's, here in America, let's look to our own interests first. And it's something in different ways that also has been embraced by Democrats in the past. Richard Gephardt had a call for, an, I think it was new economic nationalism. Robert Reich <laughs> has spoken mm-hmm. of national, it's a different kind of nationalism than that that was, for example, um, uh, proposed by Pat Buchanan. But um, could, could you talk about the differences between globalism and nationalism and how those two competing ideas sort of um, uh, c- came out in this campaign? Yeah, I would say that the, that the, glo- the globalist concept and sentiment emerged in great force after the end of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. The Cold War galvanized uh, nationalist sentiment because it, we were we viewed ourselves as being quite beleaguered. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in a situation like that, um, people tend to adopt and embrace a nationalist sentiment. Um, um, but after the Cold War, uh, a, a strong view emerged uh, that the world was kind of coming together and borders didn't matter so much. Uh, goods and services and people and mm-hmm. money uh, were going to be traversing borders and it really wasn't all that significant. Um, and, you know, people were writing all kinds of books uh, glorifying this, uh, most notably Tom Friedman in his famous huge bestseller, which I think was a ridiculous book, actually, uh, called The Lexus and the Olive Tree, which came out, I believe, in 1992. So hmm. right at the beginning of this uh, of this um, um, time. Yeah. Um, and um, and um, uh, what that ultimately did, however, was to bruise sensibilities of those people who say, well, wait a minute, I... I'm, a, I'm an American. I'm a, I'm a nationalist American. Mm-hmm. I believe in my country. I believe we should have borders. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily. I, I think that the, the the trade deals that we've been having uh, since the end of the Cold War have not been necessarily helpful for people in the industrial sector of America. Mm-hmm. Um, um, people coming across our borders illegally, or maybe even legally, if it's more than we can absorb comfortably and smoothly over a brief period of time. All that stuff was bruising the sensibilities of people who consider themselves nationalists. Mm-hmm. Nationalism is a very strong sentiment um, and has been for centuries. Right. So this conflict emerged, um, and along comes Donald Trump, and he makes it very clear with his America First rhetoric and his immigration policies and his attack uh, on trade, uh, the kinds of trade deals that we've had in the past. Uh, that he's a nationalist and he's mm-hmm. not a globalist. And the elites of America have been pretty much globalist. And there's a seething uh, body of uh, Americans out there who don't like it and uh, want to see an end to it. And that's uh, one of the reasons why Donald Trump emerged, in my view. Right. Um, and it it seems to me that perhaps, um, well, like 
so many other aspects of this election, you know, the elected officials on both sides and the party leaders weren't really listening to a lot of the people, um, weren't really paying attention. And as you said at, at, the, at the beginning, they were just sort of dug into their old way of thinking. Um, you know, it strikes me that perhaps if once I can only, you know, I'm kind of speaking just from experience on the Republican side, perhaps if they had um, been a little more nuanced, it seems to me like you don't have to be just all 100% globalist or 100% nationalist. That, you know, you could be in favor of free trade deals, but also recognize that, hey, some aspects of them were hurting certain parts of the United States. Or, mm-hmm. you know, on the Democrat side, they could say, Hey, we don't want to stop immigration, but you know, and I've I've, I've looked at old um, uh, old videos of Democrats like in the 1980s who were arguing against super liberalized immigration because of the effect it had, for example, on um, glutting up the market for low wage jobs. Um, you know, it wasn't a racist, it wasn't a racial thing at all. Um, but you know, perhaps if the Democrats instead of being like. 100% immigration saying, well, yeah, we have immigration, but we have to have some controls and whatnot that on either side, they just went to such, a, you know, kind of extremes in their own way. Um, then, then, of course, they, as they weren't paying attention to the to the sentiments that you just um, that you've just mentioned. Well, I think those sentiments um, emanate. I think you're absolutely right. And I think those those sentiments emanate from uh, a number of things. One's economic, clearly, and I think that the media and the commentators tend to focus on the economic aspects. And you're absolutely right that the elites weren't paying much attention to uh, the American working class that became kind of the forgotten body of uh, Americans. Right. Um, and uh, so that's a significant aspect of it. But it's not just economic. There's a cultural aspect to this. Yeah. And uh, when people say that they're nationalists, they, it, it, it means that they have certain, that they, that they have a certain affinity for certain aspects of their heritage, mm-hmm. uh, the American heritage. And what does that represent? Well, um, you, Sam, Samuel Huntington of Harvard, the late Samuel Huntington, who wrote a book about this, once said that there were a number of things that used to constitute the American identity. One was a racial, one was an ethnic, and then there was a cultural, there was a sense of who we are as a people. Well, we've dropped off the racial and ethnic um, elements as a significant part of our identity, but we still have certain cultural aspects, and when they feel threatened, when people feel that those things are under attack, uh, they rise up, and that's Mm -hmm. what we've seen in this election as well. I'll have one other thing, Mm -hmm. Um, and and, uh, that is that um, the Democratic Party has become a party that is really animated and directed by identity politics. Yes. I'm identified as a African American or Hispanic or gay, uh, LBGT community, et cetera, et cetera. And increasingly the identity politics has moved into a victimization concept of that identity politics. Mm-hmm. And um, a lot of people in the white working class basically said, well, wait a minute. Every Democratic Party, including some Republicans, uh, are all concerned about these people and their identity, and they're being victimized. But what about me? Uh, you know, right. things aren't that great for my people. 
um, here in uh, the middle of Pennsylvania or Ohio. Uh, and uh, I don't know why I shouldn't vote my, you know, my identity just like other people do. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to lump, um, you know, if you're talking about that sort of that politically correct term and I'm, and I'm not denying that white, absolutely white privilege is a thing and I'm not, you know, I'm not denying, uh, racism or anything like that, but if you take, you know, some poor guy or gal who's white working class and living in one of these economically depressed areas, you know, and they hear about white privilege, it's like, that doesn't apply to me. That may apply to some you know, guy in Manhattan or San Francisco or Seattle, but, um, but not me. And, uh, and I could, you know, I can see, especially I've been, you know, I was one of those who was kind of living in a bubble, just assuming Hillary Clinton was going to win. I wasn't happy about that, but, um, you know, reading about these, these Trump voters and we have some here in Washington state, you know, we have the Grays Harbor County, uh, Pacific County, Waukicum County, who have always voted Democrat, and they went ahead and voted for Trump. Um, and they're, yeah, they're feeling left out and, um, I imagine, marginalized. I think that's true, and I think that's contributed significantly to the Trump victory. Yeah. Um, another thing, th- this is just kind of a, my own personal thing with the cultural, and I, you know, I, might, I didn't vote for Trump, I just, I voted, I wrote in a candidate, but... Um, I'm also a Catholic, and, you know, uh, under the Obama, and I'm just speaking for myself here, not for the Research Council, but under the Obama administration, there's been a quite a bit of going after Catholics under Obamacare. You know, they went after the Little Sisters of the Poor. They've gone after EWTN, um, the, the Catholic television station, trying to force them to have these insurance plans that cover things that Catholics find morally objectionable, and and then I, I saw after the election that Catholics voted um, pretty decisively in, for Trump, um, whereas in past elections they voted for Obama, and I thought, gosh, you know, that's, I, I have to imagine that this has played a role, sort of some Catholics feeling like they're a little bit under siege by their own government. Well, I think that that reinforces my view that we're seeing a kind of a, a tectonic shift uh, in the uh, in the um, you know um, uh, basics of American politics. Mm-hmm. If you have a, a significant group of people, um, this is ethnic or religious. Let's just take Catholics, as you noted, mm-hmm. uh, who voted significantly for Obama, and then four years later, based on how they see the world and what's mm-hmm. going on in the world and how they feel about it and how they feel about their country, mm-hmm. they turn to somebody like Trump. Yeah. That's, that's very significant. Yeah. That's, that doesn't happen very often. That's no. a That's a very rare political phenomenon, and it reflects, I think, that, that we are in a major uh, shift, and what's going to come out of that shift, we don't know. Yeah. And is Trump going to be the one who's going to pick up the pieces and is going to run with it successfully? We don't know. Yeah. Um, but uh, the old politics, I think, uh, are pretty much gone. Yeah. And something is going to have to replace it. Yeah. Um, like That's a, a good segue to how, I mean, obviously we don't have a crystal ball, but... Um, You've been a, an observer of politics for a long time. How do you think this is going to work out with Trump? I mean, there are some issues where he's very much on the Republican side, but there are some issues where he's very much 
um, more on the Democratic side. How do you think that's going to play out with with Congress and this sort of this whole new system? They're not they're not going to be playing the same old games they've been playing for the past several decades. Um, wh- what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? Uh, well, um, as you say, we don't have a crystal ball, and I don't uh, presume to know. Um, I think there are two things to watch. One is Trump's famous temperament. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of comment during the campaign. Uh, he had his defenders, and he has serious detractors regarding his temperament. And mm-hmm. I have to say, that's going to be a factor, and we don't know how it's going to play out. But he does. He has a temperament that's potentially highly problematical. Yeah. Um, you know, we, the way he uh, deals with people, the way he attacks people, mm-hmm. uh, is that going to be conducive to his being able to create a new coalition that's um, going to be able to move congressional votes? And he's going to, obviously, in the Senate, he's going to need some Democratic votes. Mm-hmm. I don't know. The other thing that we say, which is kind of on the other side, however, is that... Um, he doesn't seem to be, as, as President Obama said in Europe, he doesn't seem to be an ideologue. Right. Uh, so he's not going to be sort of tied down to some um, ideological view about how, you know, what what constitutes a pristine policy in this area or that mm-hmm. area. Uh, he's a deal maker. That's why right. he spent his whole life cutting deals. And he didn't cut deals by walking into a room and insulting uh, the people that he had to uh, cut the deal with or he had to find common ground with. Uh, So maybe that bodes well, uh, whereas the temperament may bode ill. And how those two things come out, I have to say, it's anyone's guess. Yeah. Um, And I'm I'm not sanguine. I'm not particularly optimistic about it. Um, but it certainly is going to be a show to watch. Yeah, no doubt. I um, there was reporting yesterday that he had a. They were calling it a summit with some of the top media people in New York, both on the sort of the corporate mm-hmm. side and then also on the on-air talent. And um, word was, of course, this is just reporting, but sources were saying that he just read them the riot act and called them liars and was complaining about coverage. And I thought, wow, you know, if that's true, that seems, um, that, yeah, that doesn't bode well. It seems like he would be more magnanimous and in victory. Um, well, I, I agree with you totally. I don't think it bodes well at all, and I think this is what he tends to to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's a man that is not under complete control. Yeah. Um, and uh, in politics, uh, you know, if you can be loose and you can say things that can be dramatic and you can say things that can be that can bring sharpness to the understanding of things, that's all to the good. Um, but if you just leave a lot of bruised feelings, people don't like that. Not no. just the people whose feelings get bruised, but people who don't like the idea of a president of the United States using his power and his bully pulpit, as Teddy Roosevelt called it, mm-hmm. uh, to abuse people verbally, yeah. uh, either in their presence or behind their back. So I, I think that um, he's got a lot of traits and qualities and attributes that could become very problematical. Mm, yeah. Um one final question. This was actually uh, uh, an idea that Randy sent along. What do you make of all these um, these fake news sites that have, you know, kind of exploded? Um, and I guess it, it and that and that are you know readily available to people on 
especially on Facebook. Um, and there's, there have been some stories about these guys, and they know that they're making it up. Some of them are, like, teenagers in Macedonia. The Washington Post just did a profile on two guys um, in advertising who couldn't find work, and so they just made up all this fake news. Um, what do you think of that? And what also, what does that say about um, the, the polarization, not only of our politicians, but also of sort of the people, how they're only maybe reading what they want to read or what, you know, sort of conforms to their worldview? Well, we've always had fake news. Uh, we've always had um, uh, some sort of marginal publications. I'm thinking of the National Enquirer, for example, right. or some of these um, 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 grocery store um, publications that you would, on the checkout, you would yep. look and you see these headlines and you couldn't quite believe it. They really <laughs> um, thought that anybody would believe it, and yet they're obviously exploiting the people's ability to, to, to believe it. Right. Uh, what's changed, of course, is technology, and technology always drives these things and mm -hmm. has driven um, the business model and the editorial model of uh, American journalism since the beginning, since we had those those uh, pamphleteers at the time of George Washington and sure. John Adams, who were very, very nasty in oh, their yeah. politics for Horrible. various reasons having to do with with uh, what they needed to do to get attention, because yeah. they couldn't get big circulation, so they had to get as much attention as they possibly could. Yeah. So uh, what's changed is the ability of people who produce fake news to really insert it into the consciousness of mm. people. Um, uh, around the world, and particularly in America, and uh, in terms of our own interests. Um, and that's, it's a real problem. On the other hand, uh, if you want to go start attacking fake news and bringing these people down, um, how are you going to know when you really crossed over into censorship and exactly. you begin to take on the First Amendment? Uh, it's a very, very difficult uh, question, and I don't really have a very good answer for mm -hmm. it. I find it very disturbing, and I find it particularly disturbing because um, um, the, the old standards and values of journalism have eroded significantly so far, and, and this development could have the impact of eroding it even further. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've been amazed these past few months um, to see some of my Facebook friends posting stuff, and I'll... You know, I'll check it and then I'll go back and say, "Hey, this—I think this is one of those hoax news sites." You know, they—they—they <laughs> they either deny it or they're well. You know, they get people get defensive, I guess. Um, but yeah, I guess maybe it, because you're right. I, you know, you think about it, you can't—you can't go too far down the road of censorship. I guess it calls for greater critical thinking skills um, on the part of the the populace. Yeah, it does. I mean, the problem with uh, with attempting to control, you know, bad journalism is mm -hmm. where's the line between bad journalism and reasonable journalism or exactly. acceptable journalism? Yeah. Who gets to draw that line? And what yeah. happens to those people um, who are... Uh, presumed to be on the other side of the line, but are uh, actually uh, telling us things that we need to know. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a conundrum, and it's a very it's a very much of a mess, um, yeah. and it's a, very very difficult to figure out how to proceed. It is, and it, well, it's something we'll all have to we'll all have to think about some more. Um, well, Robert Mary, I thank you so much. This has been fascinating. Um, thank you for your time. Um, and maybe some at some point down the road when we're a little further into the Trump 
presidency, we can have you on again and you can give your, your assessment. Well, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed this and I've enjoyed that. So thank you very much. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye now.